Well, thank you for being here this morning, and uh, just want to start off by saying a special thank you uh, to the student ministry of First Baptist Church, Indianola, Mississippi, uh, for these young men and women uh, that have come with Blake and Sarah to serve here at our church this week. Um, on Friday night, we were up here, and Friday afternoon, we were up here doing a lot of painting and things uh, on the building. Um, if you like the red color in the nursery, you, you see that that's going away. Now it's covered in primer, and, and so we're, we're making progress with our construction, and these students were willing to serve and, and do that. And then yesterday we went out and split up in teams with some adults here from our church and went out into the, the community and were able to connect with a lot of people and inviting them to the block party this morning. And... Um, this is the first week of their summer, and I'm just thankful that you guys are here and enjoyed getting to know you guys and, and serving alongside you for the glory of Jesus. One funny story that I want to share that happened to Blake and his team yesterday. Um, he went to a lady's door, and she opened the door, and he invited her to the block party, and she looked at him, and she said, are you guys spirit-filled? And he was like, yes, ma'am, our church, we believe in the Holy Spirit, you know. She said, uh, what about the greater gift? Do you have the greater gift? And he didn't answer because he didn't really know what she meant by the greater gift. So she just said, he said, she said, well, do you guys believe in Jesus? She said, he said, yes, ma'am, we do. And she said, I'll see you in heaven. And she slammed the door. <laughs> So I don't think she'll, she'll come today, but uh, other people will hopefully be here from our community. And, um, and you know, Lord willing, we'll, uh, we'll be able to fellowship with them. Uh, we're in, in Matthew chapter 13 today, and um, we are picking back up in our series of walking through the harmony of the Gospels. We just finished a, a short um, kind of... I guess you could say a sabbatical from our series as we focused on five weeks of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, what is the cost of following Christ, and um, how the Holy Spirit works in making disciples, and, and uh, what is the church's role in discipleship. We spent five weeks talking about those, uh, those truths, and now we're diving back into walking through the life of Christ, through the harmony of the Gospels, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looking at them in a chronological fashion. And today we are in the parables of um, Matthew chapter 13. And as you remember, six weeks ago, uh, we started off this series of parables, this section of parables, with Jesus telling us the parable of the sower, this famous parable of, of the good seed being scattered, some on the, the, the path where the birds come and devour the food, and some on the, the rocky soil, and, and, and uh, eventually following the, the, falling onto the good soil where there's uh, fruit and there's growth. And one of the things that we want to stress and make sure that we understand about the parables is, is that Jesus spoke the parables to the masses, but he knew that a lot of them would not understand them. Matter of fact, we see 
throughout the parables uh, in the life and the ministry of Jesus as, he's, as he continually preached in this fashion. He says, he who, has, he, he who has ears, let them hear. And what he was talking about is, is that uh, he understood that some of them were not spiritually cultivated to understand the word of God, that, that their eyes and their ears were not illuminated, and, and so they, they weren't able to hear. And so for many of the people that heard these parables, they were merely stories of life and agriculture and, and, and things of that nature, and, and they missed the, uh, the truths therein. But for his disciples, we saw that Jesus would, um, uh, especially in Matthew 13, verses uh, 1 through uh, uh, 9, the parable of the sower, he explains that parable to them. And also in our parable today, the, the parable of the weeds, he will explain this parable to them. And he will say the same words. Um, that, that we hear, he who has ears, let him hear. And just as, a, as an introduction, I, I want us to think about those, that phrase this morning because my prayer for you this morning is that you have the spiritual ears to hear. If you're a young person here this morning and maybe you don't necessarily understand what Jesus is saying, he's, he's basically saying that that in our salvation, in, our, um, in, the, in the work of the Holy Spirit and saving us by the uh, sacrifice of Christ, he, he gives us new life in him. And in that new life through Christ in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that new life allows us to understand the things of God in, what, in ways that we never could understand them before. It would almost be like... Um, before Christ, we are, uh, we are foreigners in a foreign land, not able to understand the language that's spoken. If you've ever been or, or been around a culture of people that speak a different language and they're speaking in their, their cultural language or their, their personal language and they're speaking to one another and you have no idea what's being said, that's kind of how we are with spiritual matters, with the word of God before we come to know Jesus Christ. And so if you find yourself oftentimes not able to understand God's word and not really seeing the importance of those things, let me just start off at the very beginning of my sermon this morning and encourage you to evaluate your life and, 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 and try to discover, is Christ really your Lord? Have you really been saved? Are you really trusting in him? My prayer this morning is that you will understand this parable, maybe even for the first time, because you will believe and trust in Jesus. That God would give you by his Holy Spirit an understanding. Let me read this starting in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weed, weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. 
Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now jump down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parables of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is clearly explaining to us the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom of God, we are not thinking in this moment about a a place. We're not thinking about a people. We're thinking about the sovereign rule and reign of God in this world. Many commentators uh, have tried to to fit this parable into a description of the church. But clearly in this parable, Jesus explains to us that the field is not the church, the field is the world. And if this is the world, then what we are seeing is that there is warfare in the world between the people of God and the enemies of God. Yes, we see that warfare oftentimes in the church, but Jesus is explaining to his disciples, this is what you need to be prepared for. That there is kingdom warfare, that you need to understand the reality of this warfare, that you need to demonstrate a great kingdom perseverance and patience, and that you need to look forward to the coming kingdom judgment. And so those are the three things we're going to talk about today. The reality of kingdom warfare, the need for kingdom perseverance, and lastly, the promise of kingdom judgment. First, the reality of kingdom warfare. No, It is only fitting for the the great general of the Lord, the the one who is equipping his his army, the one who is equipping his soldiers that go out into the world to to remind them and relay to them the reality that they are at war. It sounds silly for a general to say to his soldiers, you are at war, but oftentimes we forget, right? Right? We get complacent with our life and we we don't think about the fact that we are constantly under attack in our lives in this world as God's people. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to convey here in in this parable. This farmer 
And his servants have faithfully gone out and they've sowed the good seeds. And in in this parable, the good seeds represent not the word of God, like in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Now this good seed is representative of the sons of the kingdom, the daughters of the kingdom, the people that belong to the kingdom of God. And folks, by the way, that belonging comes through a faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. If you submit to the king, you belong to the kingdom. If you reject the king, you are enemies of the kingdom. There's a clear dividing line. And what we see from the enemy is an attempt at a hostile takeover. He comes in, he sneaks in at night, and he begins to sow weeds among the good wheat. He's doing it because he wants to take over. He wants to circumvent the work of the kingdom. Now, I want you to think about this scenario as, as uh, I'm not sure how many gardeners we have here and, and horticulturalists. I'm not sure you're green thumb, okay? But imagine in your yard at home, if you have a, a, a sprout of crabgrass that pops up, you're not, a, you're not worried about the effect of that one little weed that's popping up, pop, popping up. So you're going to go out and you're going to pluck up that one weed and you're going to be done. You're good, right? Well, this is clearly not happening in this story because there is so much uh, weeds, so many weeds that are, that are get, uh, growing within the wheat, within this, uh, this crop, that it is literally... Uh, become a huge problem so much so that the farmer says, just leave it. So it's best to look at this as that there's literally a complete, almost mixture of good crop and weeds, intermingled, grown together. And I think that's important because it it shows us the grand and great amount of evil in this world, we don't have to be convinced of that, but we know that that evil is not all directly related to Satan, but it is all directly related to sin. That sin has corrupted this world. That you could go out and you could throw a rock and probably hit at least one person close by that has experienced brokenness in the last 24 to 48 hours. Brokenness in their family, brokenness in their their marriage, at work. We are people that always are experiencing the brokenness of this world. And that comes from the corruption of sin. So as these weeds are there among the wheat, They are trying to take over. And Jesus explains to them that these weeds represent the sons of the evil one. I think it's safe to say through the study of of wheat that these weeds are represented as what's called darnel. Darnel is is a weed that grows and the, the interesting thing about Darnell is that, that when it grows in its infancy, it looks just like wheat. 
So think about this story. There is wheat growing and there is this darnel growing together. And at first, the farmer and, and, or the servants, they don't recognize the difference. They don't see a difference there. Look what it says. And the servants of the master came to, I'm sorry, it says in verse 25, but while the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the, wheats, the weeds appeared also. So in the infancy, they couldn't necessarily tell that one was a weed and one was, was not. But as these plants came and, and bore grain, then this darnel represents itself as a weed. And what's interesting about darnel is that it is actually in its fullest uh, growth rate and, and, and state, it is a poisonous weed. If you got this mixed in with wheat and you made grain and, and baked bread with darnel in it, it would be poisonous and could kill you. So how fitting is it that Jesus is using this illustration to not only talk about sin, but talking about specifically the warfare that we will go through as believers in Jesus Christ. That Satan is always trying to attack. He is always on the attack against the church and against God's people. And we must remember that. He's not just attacking our church body. He's attacking our individual families and our personal lives. He is always trying to tempt us. He is always trying to corrupt in some way our lives. He's definitely not forcing us to do things against our will, but he is attacking our weakest points in our life. And so I want you to think about your life and your family. Because 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I think Jesus tells these disciples and uses this example to remind them to be watchful. Because we fall in such a, uh, a comfort zone that we forget that, that our church is at, at attacked. That, that the, 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 our families are trying to be attacked. And we just get comfortable and we, we don't have our guard up. We're not prepared the way that we should be. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So not only is it a hostile, but it's coverted. It's coming at night. You know, I was a youth pastor for 10 years and, and it was clear to me that, that I would see my students attacked spiritually, not in the open, not in, in, in broadcasted ways. It was always uh, the, the enemy and, and temptation of sin coming in these small little measures. For them, it oftentimes was this, this new world of technology that was coming forth and it was providing windows and doors of temptation to sin. 
And it was usually in the privacy of their bedrooms or in the schools or, or wherever where uh, parents were completely unaware. And so Satan comes and, and, he, and he sows this seed at night and, and he's doing it to be covert and, and because he's the great deceiver. And so we as God's people have to be alert and, and watchful like an army at night sleeping in their tent, having someone on watch, always ready to, uh, to stand up and alert everyone else about the attacks of the enemy. And it doesn't mean that we can't ever live in peace and comfort because we trust in a God who is sovereign over even Satan, who rules over all things, but yet we're commanded to be watchful and ready because Satan is trying to tempt. And where does he attack us? Well, he attacks. His attacks come with the, the, the nature of sin that dwells in all of us. See, we are the ones corrupted by sin. We are the ones that have missed the mark and, and, and desire in, in our own lives before Christ to, to be enemies of God, even if we don't realize it. And so Satan is clearly just laying traps out before us and, and, and allowing us to fall into those things on our own because of our own corrupt, corrupted nature of sin. But I want to give you four ways or three ways, excuse me, that, 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 that the scripture teaches us specifically about these attacks from Satan. Number one, he attacks us with distraction. Think about it. Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil, right? And there for 40 days and 40 nights without eating, He's there in the wilderness. And how does Satan try to tempt Jesus into sin? By distraction. He uses his hunger, his physical hun hunger, to try to distract him into falling into sin. And this is the, the way that the predator attacks the prey. He uses elements of distraction and here Jesus is focused on his mission and he's focused on his goal and he's filled with the, the word of God because he is the living word of God and he doesn't allow the distraction to, to circumvent or to, to take him off course. He sticks to the mission that he's been given by the Father. And of course, our distractions as people of God's kingdom are so many, I, I couldn't mention them all in one sermon, but let me just simply ask, what area in your life is a hindrance to God's kingdom? Where are you being distracted? I'm not asking you where is Satan forcing you to do things. I'm saying in your own sinfulness, where are you distracted in such a way that you have been, uh, you have veered off course from God's mission and God's kingdom. 
Number two, deception. Paul reminds the church in Corinth that just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. He says their end will correspond to their deeds. So not only does Satan try to distract us, but he deceives us. These people in the world, um, many of them are false teachers, have infiltrated the world and they are taking God's word and they are twisting it and, and, and manipulating it to their own devices for their own advantages. And they, they, they drive their fancy cars and they live in their giant mansions and they preach false gospels and they think that they're just blessing themselves when really they are workers of Satan. They are actually more uh, in allegiance with Satan than the actual people who go to the church of Satan in California and other places who don't even really believe in the being of Satan. They just believe in evil. And they just, they submit to do whatever satisfies them. False teachers are pure workers of Satan, corrupting and deceiving this world. One example that I think is probably controversial in today's evangelical church I've mentioned it to you before, but I, I just continually see the growing impact of these things in our church bookstores and in families that I have to mention it. Sarah Young wrote a book called Jesus Calling. Sarah Young, in that book, talks about the necessity of having something more than the word of God in our lives that it wasn't enough for the word of God to feed her soul and to nourish her soul. So she, she had to seek something else outside of the word of God as if the word of God is not sufficient for our spiritual lives. So as your, as your pastor, as your uh, teaching elder, let me warn you this morning that this is not something on the bookshelves of just ladies in the church anymore. This is a student version. This is a children's version. This is a, 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 a men's Bible study curriculum. This is a woman's Bible study curriculum. And what it's teaching in our churches today is that you need to look beyond the word of God to have spiritual nourishment for your souls. And when we begin to look beyond the word of God, then we end up like the people of Israel who eventually just disregarded God's word and they had it locked up in the temple somewhere and they forgot about it until they came and discovered it again and they read it out loud and they were weeping because they realized this is all we needed. He deceives, he distracts, he leads us to doubt. He wants to put before you the same question he put before Eve. Did God really say this? Did God really say those things? Are you sure that's what God means? And brothers and sisters, if we are not solid in our understanding and, and the way that we study God's word, if we don't have 
a right and healthy Bible study habit that when these type of um, heresies and errors come through the church, we will fall prey to them. Deception, doubt, distraction. Well, let's shore that up with three commands from God's word. I already gave you one, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded and watchful. Be on alert. Have your spiritual mind in tune with the word of God. Not with some preacher that you love says, but with the word of God. Be alert. Satan wants to attack and tempt your children into sin. He wants to attack your teenagers. He wants to attack your own marriage. He wants to to use you in a hypocritical way at your workplace and in your community. He wants to ruin your testimony. And he's doing that because he knows the sinfulness in all of us have the capacity to fail and to fall. Be sober-minded and watchful. Number two, Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're not left alone. We are not left alone. We have the resources to, to withstand the attacks against the, against the church, against God's people. We've been given the things necessary by God to, to withstand these things. And they are not things that we should pray for and, and expect them to come in these divine experiences. They have been given to us. We've been given God's word. We have been given his spirit. We have been given God's people as a community of faith to stand together and to bear these attacks together. Lastly, James 4, 7, resist the devil. Pretty simple. Number one, the reality of kingdom warfare. Number two, the need for kingdom perseverance. Or you could say the need for kingdom patience. Verse 29, he says, at the the question of the servant, should we go and pluck up these weeds? And the farmer says in verse 29, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Folks, in the sovereignty of God's plan, as difficult as it is for us to understand God fully in a way that we want to, We know and understand that God has revealed himself as the one who rules and reigns over all things. And in this very verse, what we see is that he has permitted evil to exist in this world. He is not the author of evil, but he, at at this moment in time, until Christ returns, is allowing evil to exist. And he's not doing it because he's unjust. It's not doing it because he's evil. He doesn't have multiple personalities. 
He is doing it because it is all uh, pointing toward the end, the consummation of his kingdom. He is doing it because he is patient with all, not wanting any to perish. And as people in this world cry out, if God is so good and if God is so loving, why does he not just wipe out evil in the world? You know what they're asking? They're asking for themselves to be wiped out. Because if God is wiping out evil, guess what? He's wiping out all evil. Every, every person who sins, wiped out. Every person who has the impure thought, wiped out. And so in their own evaluation, they have decided that they are good and that they are righteous and they just want God to do something about all the other people and they're not really considering their own lives. And so what we see here is that by God's command and God's rule over all things, he says, don't be satisfied with evil. He doesn't say that we shouldn't fight against evil, that we should not stand up for those uh, uh, innocent children aborted every day, that we not, should not stand up and, uh, and, and, or, or sit back and, and not allow the, the, the oppressed uh, to be helped and be cared for. He's not saying those things. He's telling us to endure evil for a time. To endure it. To be patient with it. Peter gives us a, a good example in his writing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, there's the evil, they will speak against you as evildoers. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When you endure evil, you are patient in the midst of an evil world. You are patient with unbelievers. You are patient with those things that irk you and bother you because you're like, why do they live this way? And why do they believe these things? And you are, we are all clearly forgetting that we used to believe those things. So we must endure evil. Peter writes those words in chapter two to a group of the church that was facing persecution he was not saying, listen, endure evil when you go to the work and people make fun of you. Or they scoff at your beliefs. He's saying this to people that were being put in prison and, and being tr abused for their faith. It would be like, more like him saying these words to the Coptic Christians in Egypt that are being killed right and left day after day in the last two or three months. But yet we must endure evil. We must be patient. Our impatience with the sin of this world is a righteous impatience 
but it oftentimes leads us to sinful attitudes and actions. We could be so fed up with sin that, that it should lead us to prayer and, and, and asking for the Lord to come and pleading with him, but knowing that in his sovereignty, he's gonna come according to his plan. And until then, that we should be patient with our neighbors who act like unbelievers because that's what they are. I'll give you an example. This is a confession. In our first house, Amy and I, we were newlyweds and we moved into this house in Cordova and we had a, a homosexual partnered couple next to us on one side and we tried to establish a relationship with them and, and didn't do a great job at it, to be honest with you. But across the cove that we lived in, we had these, these neighbors that literally once every three months, the Shelby County sheriffs were at their house. And they were loud and they were fighting all the time. And I'll never forget one time, there was a, a season, I guess you could say, where there was a Kroger grocery cart turned sideways in their front yard for probably two or three months. And as a young homeowner and someone living in the flesh, we were more concerned with how that made our neighborhood look than actually trying to reach out to these people and share the love of Jesus Christ with them. I mean, we were like, how could these people go over to Kroger and steal a grocery cart and then leave it in the front yard like that? As if we were like, okay, that they stole the grocery cart and stuck it to the side of the house in an orderly fashion. But instead, being patient with just silliness, stack your grocery carts up in your yard. That's okay. Let your weeds grow high. I'm not going to call the city of Bartlett on you as long as you are receptive to hear about Jesus. Isn't that what we should be like? I mean, shouldn't that be our focus? And I'm speaking for myself too. I got teenagers driving 50, 60 miles an hour down my street. And I want to be, you know, like the crotchety old man that's down there writing their license plate down which is safe. But am I concerned that I can meet these people and, and share the love of Christ? Oftentimes I'm not. Endure evil. Be patient with all. Trust in Christ alone. Christ is the overcomer of evil. We are not. Christ is the one who lived the perfect life, provided the righteousness that we could never provide for ourselves. And when he was dying on the cross, he was stepping on the neck of Satan and he was saying, it's finished, it's over. What I'm doing here is what is needed to provide salvation and to change this world. And it's not just to provide a salvation for people, God's people, but one day he will consummate his kingdom and he will rid evil of this entire world. And he will establish new heavens and a new earth. And it will be a glorious eternity that we get to live in in the presence of our Lord and Savior. 
And so we trust in him because he is our overcomer. Because he is the one who will rid this world of evil for good. But don't forget 1 John chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 5. That John writes to these people that he loves and cares for and has, has mentored and discipled. And he says to them, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. How did they overcome the evil one? He says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We overcome the evil one when we trust in Christ, because he is the overcomer. Because he has overcome the world that, that it says in 1 John 5 that, that this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that it overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has overcome evil and sin and, and Satan and death and, and that not only is he changing us spiritually now, but one day he will rid this world fully of the suffering and the brokenness that we face. And lastly, the promise of kingdom judgment. He's saying, disciples, listen, this parable is a warning. Be ready for this attack. Be patient and know that it's according to my sovereignty and my will that evil will exist for a time and until I finally come and, and remove it fully and know that the promise is that the harvest time will come. The great reaping. The promise of kingdom judgment. In verse 30b, he writes, and at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This great reaping is under Christ's authority. He is the Son of Man. A lot of times we hear son of man and our, our mind goes back to Daniel chapter 7 where we see this great prophecy of, of the ancient of days giving authority and judgment to the son of man. But we should also understand that, that the son of man um, is not only a, a title pointing to Daniel 7, but that the Son of Man refers to the, uh, not only the humanity of Christ, it was the title that Jesus used quite often of himself, referring to himself in his human state. But it's also the Son of Man was a title that Jesus gave to himself associated with his deity. It was the, uh, the understanding, Jesus says in John chapter 5, that the Son of Man can do nothing on his own accord. Is the son of man who forgives sin. Well, to the Jews, 
If the Son of Man forgives sin, then the Son of Man must be God because only God forgives sin. That's how the Jews would have thought about that. For Jesus to call himself the Son of Man was necessarily, uh, uh, you know, magnificent to them. Maybe they thought of, of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, but for him to say that the Son of Man forgives sin is for him to say the Son of Man is God. Because only God forgives sin. So, Jesus says, the Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather them out of his kingdom. That's his authority. That's his reign. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, John chapter 5, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will, will he show him so that, he, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He uh, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you haven't read through all of the Gospels, let me encourage you to read through them. And as you do, notice the clear dividing line that Jesus makes, not only in this parable, not only in what I just read, but there is an absolute distinction that all of the world will be divided into two groups. And Jesus gives these examples in different ways, different images for the same truth, whether it's wheat and weeds, whether it's sheep and goats, whether you're on the narrow way or the broad path, whether you build your house on sand or you build your house on the firm foundation of Christ, whether you're the wheat or the chaff, all these different images are the same. There is no middle. There is no uh, passing lane in your spiritual lives. There is no median that, that you can just casually stand and, and, and make your decisions. You are rather for Christ or you are against him. And so Jesus is telling this parable to point to his judgment. That at the harvest time, at the end of the age, or the close of the age, as your translation may say, he is saying that the great reaping of Jesus Christ, this great judgment that comes, is actually the transition to eternity. That when Christ comes again and brings judgment into this world, it is not the end. This is not annihilationism. Christians don't go to heaven and unbelievers become dust. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus is saying at the end of this age that we live in now, then more stuff is happening and through eternity. And that more stuff begins with his judgment where he will divide those who are enemies of God's kingdom 
with those who are sons and daughters of the kingdom. People who do not belong to the kingdom, he says, are causes of sin or lawbreakers. They have disregarded the law of God. They don't care about God's word. They are living for themselves. They are basically being what their sinful nature wants them to be, sinners. And in that place that they will be, while the word hell is not used, he is describing hell. He is describing a, a real place that exists where people will suffer for all eternity because of their unrighteousness, because of their rebellion against God the King. They deserve to be there because they were sinners. They deserve to be there because they were born into sin and they have rebelled against God continually throughout their lives. They deserve to be there because they rejected the gospel. And so God is purely and, and completely just in sending people to hell. In Matthew chapter 25, I would say, is the greatest parallel to this passage. You can read that on your own. I'm not going to read that, but it, it's, this, it's the passage where Jesus gives the parable of the sheep and the goats. But in that passage there, as he concludes describing the same scene in Matthew chapter 25, he actually says that they will go into eternal punishment. So grasp for a second, eternal punishment. That every moment of your existence after Christ comes and judges you for your sin, if you have never trusted in Christ, will be an eternity of suffering. This weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's, some people have said that it's an anger against God. It, it, the context doesn't lend that. The context is talking about an eternal suffering. You are weeping uh, because of the pain and you're gnashing your teeth because of the suffering that you are going through. You are facing the wrath of God against sin. I don't really contemplate what people will be thinking in hell I don't think that they will be gnashing their teeth at Christ or, 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 or their experiences. I think they will just be suffering from the wrath of God and their suffering in itself will make them gnash their teeth and weep for all eternity. It's not a pleasant thought, but it is a reality. It's a reality that leads us to consider our own salvation to understand that, that we are guilty in our sin and that it, if we have never trusted in Christ, there is no other way to heaven. There is no one who can save us besides the, the Son of God who has sent into the world to save people from their sin. Many paths don't lead to heaven. It's one way. It's through Jesus Christ. And if you have not trusted in him, if you have not submitted yourself to him as king, then you will be sent for eternity to, be suffer, uh, to suffer for your sin because you are an enemy of the king. 
But then the hope concludes and will be done. The hope of this great reaping is that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has, has ears, let him hear. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This image is, is that the righteousness of people in eternity, in the presence of their father, their righteousness is not their own. We know that. That is from the righteousness of Christ. He lived the perfect life for you. So you're not getting to heaven because you do righteous things. You get to heaven and you get to enjoy the presence of Christ forever because you are righteous because of Jesus. You are righteous in Jesus. You are holy and perfect in the eyes of the Father because of the holiness and the perfection of Jesus who has clothed your sinfulness. And while you will struggle in this life to, uh, to, to change and to be transformed into the image of God, you will never be perfect in this life. But you will always be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus if you have trusted in him. That garment of righteousness is not on loan. It's not on layaway. It comes right when Christ saves you and changes your life. And because of that, you will shine like the sun. That is the glory of Christ reflecting off of your life. And you will enjoy that beauty and that grace and that perfection for all eternity. Why? Because you belong to the kingdom of your father. He is your father. What an encouraging message for these disciples to hear. There's warfare. Be patient in the midst of evil. There's going to be a great judgment. But if you're one of the righteous, relax. Enjoy the grace of God. Live your life serving him and glorifying him. Don't, don't sit in a hammock for the rest of your life, but, but, but serve him faithfully and trust in him through the good and the difficult times because you are the righteous and you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father for all eternity. So if you're here this morning and, and, and you, you know in your, in your life that you have surrendered to Christ, then you rejoice you mourn over sin and you mourn over the current state of this world and the, the sadness and the death that surrounds us, but you know of the hope that brings us out of that. And you find grace in the truth of those things in, in your daily life. You know that the power of the resurrection has risen Christ from the dead, so you know that he has given you the power by his spirit to overcome the sin in your life. If you deal with anger or lust or greed or a, you're a gossip, you know and understand that the resurrection power shows you that he, Christ is greater than that sin. You don't have to live with it forever. You don't have to struggle with your depression. You don't have to struggle with a failing marriage. Christ's power to rise from the dead can overcome anything that we struggle with if we believe and trust in him. So believe in him. Rejoice in him. And be patient until he comes. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ Jesus today, let me encourage you.
to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness and for an eternity in his presence. And he will, he will save you.